Well, friends, I want to start with a question. How quick are you to pick up on the cues and signals that you receive from other people? One glaring area in which this is tested is the husband-wife relationship, which is intended by God to be the most intimate human relationship. Husbands, you know that God commands you to love your wives as Christ loves the church. Do you know what your wife's love language is? What she interprets as love? Is it physical affection? Is it serving her? Is it uh, gifts? Is it words of affirmation? Is it doing things together, spending time together? What is her love language? Some of you may not even know. How are you going to love her if you don't even know what she interprets as love? Others of you men will say, I got that, Pastor. I've nailed that. I know what her love languages are. But then I would ask you, how well are you doing at practicing that? Are you really loving her in a way that she feels cherished? If I were to ask her, if someone were to ask her, does she feel cherished by you? I fear that maybe some of you men are like me, a slow learner when it comes to how to love my wife, and perhaps even slower in practicing that love consistently through the years. We can be slow learners. You wives, one of your duties, as you know from Ephesians 5, is to respect your husbands. Remember we watched the series Love and Respect? What is important to a man is not so much love, but to be respected. He has no doubt given you a lot of cues as to the fact that respect is really important to him. He may have reminded you, or maybe you can see it in his face when there's a lack of respect. Wives, have you internalized that responsibility that you have to respect your husband? Are you working hard to do that by affirming him, by properly submitting to him, and and by speaking to him in a respectful way, even with the tone of your voice? Some of you women may say, I can probably do better at that. I've been slow to learn how to respect my husband. Children, you know what your main duty is in life while you're a child? You know it. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, let me ask you, did you hear it the first time and say, I got that? I got that. And from, from then on, obey your parents perfectly? Probably not. You've probably had to hear again and again, children, please obey Please obey. Please obey. Why do you need to hear it again and again? Because you didn't get it the first time. You were slow to learn it, right? How often in our friendships and other social relationships have we trampled upon other people's feelings in needlessly hurtful ways, even when we know that our words and actions will offend them? Now, why am I saying all this? Not because I'm intending to preach this morning on relationships or the family, but because we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, and you may, you may open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, and we're going to see yet another occasion when the disciples of Jesus come across as almost unbelievably dull-minded and slow to understand who Jesus is, even though to us it seems patently and glaringly clear. And I want to make sure that as we look at the apostles, whereas we have a right to be somewhat critical of them, that we're not too hard on them and rather see ourselves in them because there are areas where we are very slow to learn as well. Well, before I plunge into our text, which will be 
Mark 6, 45 to 52, I, I want to just step back and give, remind you of the overall structure of Mark's gospel. Mark begins, and he's very straightforward in this gospel, and he begins by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In verse 15, Jesus begins his ministry. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark's aim in writing to Romans and Gentiles as his audience is to show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's come to bring the kingdom of God. In the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God is present in the world. The first half of Mark's gospel up until chapter 8, verse 29, seeks to answer the question, who is Jesus? The correct answer is, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. In chapter 8, 29, which we haven't gotten to yet, there's a pivot in the narrative. Peter gives his great confession, you are the Christ. And the second half of the Gospel of Mark, from then on, seeks to ask and answer the question, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? And contrary to the expectations of the Jews of his day, Jesus did not come to be a political and military Messiah to deliver the Jews from the rule of the Romans. He came to be a suffering servant Messiah. He came to suffer and die and set us free from a greater enemy, The the enemy of of sin and eternal death. So we're still in the first half of Mark, where the question is, who is Jesus? And Mark is demonstrating who Jesus is by showing us the authority he has in his words and in the power he has to do miracles. Let's briefly review what we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark of the authority and power of Jesus. In chapter 1, in the synagogue in Capernaum, he teaches, and the people say he teaches as one with authority and not as the scribes. The mealy-mouthed scribes only um, echoed the opinions of the various rabbis. They didn't speak with divine authority. Jesus speaks with divine authority. In chapter 2, he says to a paralytic, a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Now, who can forgive sins but God only? It's the prerogative of God to forgive sins. And yet Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then he says to this paralyzed man, take up your pallet, your bed, and walk. And he does. Jesus, later on, lays claim to being the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a a foundational, cherished institution under the old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant. And Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he dares to defy all the man-made Pharisaic traditions about Sabbath observance. Although he is untrained in the rabbinic schools, he presumes to call men as disciples. And he says authoritatively, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus has repeatedly demonstrated his power over demons Most graphically, the Gerasene demoniac, a man who was out among the tombs, cutting himself, gashing himself with stones like a a wild man. And when Jesus is done with him, he is clothed and sitting there in his right mind. Jesus demonstrates his power over diseases, his power over death as he raises from the dead the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus, the synagogue official. 
And what we saw last week and previously, Jesus shows his power over nature. When there's a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus simply says, hush, be still. And the winds and the waves settle down. And last week we saw the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus took five little flat loaves of bread and two fish, and he fed how many? 5,000 men, 10, 15,000 people, miraculously multiplying that bread, showing his power over the natural realm. And what has been the response of his little band of apostles to these amazing displays? Well, they've been amazed. They've been astonished. In the synagogue of Capernaum in chapter 1, They were there, and it says they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? When he healed the paralyzed man, again, the apostles were there, and they were among those of whom it is said they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. But when the disciples are caught in that storm, and Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat, and they wake him up, and he stills the storm by saying, hush, be still. Jesus has to rebuke them and say, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And then Mark reports that they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? When Jesus raised the daughter of Lazarus, three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John were there, and it says of them they were completely astounded. So what we're seeing as the apostles witnessed these amazing miracles of Jesus, power over demons, power over death, power over over nature, power over disease, they're amazed, they're astonished, but their belief, their trust, is falling far short of what it ought to be. And as we continue this morning, still in the first half of Mark's Gospel, where the question is, who is Jesus? we're going to see that their faith is still far from what it should be. Follow as I read our text, verses 45 to 52 of Mark 6. Immediately, that is after dismissing the people, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. I want us to see four things about Jesus from this passage. And the first is simply Christ prays. And I'm saying including for his disciples. Jesus compels them to get into a boat. Now, if we were studying John, we would understand why he compelled them to get into the boat. This crowd wanted to make Jesus an earthly king. 
Jesus wasn't intending to be an earthly king. And they had wrong notions of the Messiah, that he was this earthly Messiah with conquering power. And Jesus knew that his disciples would be susceptible to that wrong thinking. And so to protect them, he whisked them off. Get out of here. He didn't want them subject to the pressure of the crowd that were trying to make Jesus an earthly king. And so he, he whisks them off. And then it says he goes up to the mountain to pray. This was a time of temptation for Jesus. If we bring in John, it was a temptation for Jesus to be an earthly king. The devil knew that because in the wilderness, the devil said, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. That was not the way to kingship for Jesus. To get to exaltation, he had to go through the valley of humiliation, namely the cross. And so it was a temptation for Jesus in his humanity to become an earthly king. And he withdrew to the mountain to pray. It teaches us that when we are especially tempted, it's a time when we ought to draw near to God and pray that we would resist the temptation. But Mark doesn't give us that detail. All Mark says is that Jesus went up into the mountain to pray. So let's note a few things about the prayer life of Jesus before we move on. Jesus prayed often. He prayed habitually. Even in the Gospels, we see Jesus often withdrawing to be alone with his Father to pray. One commentator says, prayer was Christ's very breath. And we might ask, is that true of us? To what degree can it be said of you that prayer is your very breath? Jesus prayed as one who delighted in the Father's will. In Matthew 11, he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for it was well-pleasing in your sight. In your prayer, do you delight in the Father's will? When you see the unfolding of, of the, your God's providence, do you delight in his will as it works out in your life and around you? We know that Jesus prayed as one who submitted to the Father's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, if possible, let this cup pass from me. But how did he resolve it? Yet not my will, but yours be done. Do you pray that way? Are you praying submissive to the will of God? A couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of being in California for the One Day Shepherds Conference. And Pastor John MacArthur, who has pastored the same church for 52 years, he shared at one point that he's often asked, looking back on your long ministry, what would you change? His answer was absolutely nothing. My, if I had worked my plan for my life, I would have made a mess of it. I cannot improve on the perfect plan that God has had for my life. Jesus prayed forgiving prayers. From the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Remember Jesus' words, if you forgive those who have trespassed against you, your Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive them, neither will your Father forgive you. Now that's not teaching that we earn forgiveness by forgiving. What it is saying is that if you are a forgiven one, a Christian, you will forgive others. If you have been shown mercy by God, you will show mercy to others. Jesus prayed at times lengthy prayers. We learn uh, that when he was choosing the 12 apostles, he prayed all night. And here, it was a lengthy prayer. We're going to see that Jesus 
walked on the water in the fourth watch of the night. By Roman reckoning, that's between three and six in the morning. So from the time he dismissed the crowd till four or five in the morning, Jesus was praying. Now, I'm not saying that we need to be giving ourselves to all-night prayer, but it does teach us that we need to not just breeze in and out of God's presence in prayer. We need to learn to take time in prayer. We might compare it to a tea bag and a cup of hot water. If you just dip the tea bag in the hot water and pull it out, it will only lightly stain the cup. But if you let it steep, it will give you a rich and deep coloration. As the tea permeates the water, we can apply that to our time in the Word. We can also apply that to our prayer lives. If you just dip in and out of God's presence in prayer, your life will only be lightly colored by His character. If you stay longer in God's presence in prayer, your life will be more deeply stained by His holy character. And finally, about Jesus praying, we can be assured he was praying for his disciples. He did that often. At one point, recorded in Luke 22, he says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has commanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. We know from the high priestly prayer of Jesus how he prayed for his disciples, how he's even praying for us in his heavenly intercession. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil one. And we can be assured that on this occasion, as he's up on the mountain, having dismissed his disciples onto the sea, he's thinking about them and he's praying for them. They are much on his mind, as we will soon see. Which reminds us that Jesus is praying for us You know that his intercession ensures that you will never perish. Romans says he ever lives to make intercession for you. As long as Jesus is praying for you and me at the right hand of God, we will never perish. Jesus would have to perish before we could perish because he's constantly continuing his priestly work by praying for us at the right hand of God. And as he no doubt prayed for his disciples, it's a reminder for us to pray for one another. Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times. Uh, For all the saints, the Apostle Paul says. So Jesus, Christ, prays. Next, see with me that Christ perceives his disciples in trouble. Picking up in verse 47, when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. As Jesus is on the mountain praying... His disciples are making their way across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee in their boat. Mark picks up the narrative, picturing them as in the middle of the sea. Now, from where they were launching is a place called Bethsaida of Galilee. And to where they were going, which was another Bethsaida, Bethsaida Julius. Now, you say, would there be two towns by the name of Bethsaida? Well, Bethsaida means house of fish. And when you have villages on the, on the shore, it's not uncommon for two to be named houses. So there were two Bethsaidas. The distance between the two Bethsaidas was five miles. John's Gospel tells us they were about three or four miles into the sea. Mark simply says they were in the middle of the sea. Why does he say that? 
Well, there are always skeptics who want to explain away the miracles of Jesus. And you can imagine where they, 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 they can't believe Jesus was walking on the water, so they're saying, well, Jesus was really walking along the shoreline. Well, Mark wants us to know that, no, this was open water. They're three or four miles out. They have another mile or two to go. This is open water. Jesus is not walking along the shoreline. They're in the middle of the sea. And how did Jesus see them straining at the oars? Maybe an occasional commentator will believe that he saw them with the eyes of flesh. He's up on a mountain. They're out on the sea, three or four miles out. The likelihood is he did not see them with the eyes of flesh. It wasn't a calm, moonlit night. It was a stormy night. In all likelihood, he saw them with the eye of omniscience. One of those occasions when Jesus chose to use the prerogative of his his deity and see them with the eye of omniscience. And what did he see? He saw them, it says, straining at the oars. That word straining literally means to be tormented, to be vexed with grievous pain. It's the word put in the mouths of demons when they say, have you come to torment us before the time? It's the word used to describe Lot, who was vexed in his righteous soul as he lived among the wicked people of Sodom. There's a vexation, there's a grief, there's a torment going on there. Why? Because the wind was against them. They had furled the sail, they had taken to the oars, but as hard as they were rowing, they were not making any headway. The wind was not allowing them to gain any any ground or any water in this case. Matthew says that the boat was tormented by the waves. So you had a tormented boat and you had tormented boatmen. They were in trouble. It's the fourth watch. By Roman reckoning, that would be between 3 and 6 in the morning. They shoved off probably before dark. They've been straining at the oars for hours. They are exhausted. They are frustrated. R.C. Sproul believes it was probably closer to dawn, maybe 5 o'clock, maybe 5.30. And there's a fierce and threatening wind, threatening to capsize them. They're exhausted from rowing. They're in danger of being swallowed up by the angry sea and going to their deaths in the depths of, of the water. But the point is that Christ saw them in their situation. He saw them because he was looking out for them. His eyes were upon them. He no doubt had his eyes upon them in his prayers for them. And he sees them on the sea with his eye of omniscience. And he saw them, friends, not with a helpless eye, not with a passively indifferent eye, but he saw them as one who cared for them, who loved them, and had the power to do something about the situation they were in. Quite a number of years ago, I was at a Christian conference on the inner city in Washington, D.C., And after the evening session, it was either dusk or dark, I can't remember, I was walking over an overpass, and I looked down below me and I saw something that frightened me. There was a car getting onto the highway, but it was getting on at the exit ramp. And there was another car with its headlights getting off of the highway onto that exit ramp. And they were headed for a head-on collision. And from my vantage point, my instinct was to shout and warn them. But that would have been futile. They couldn't have heard me. I had 
seen the situation they were in, but I was helpless to do anything about it. I will tell you that they saw each other and averted the crash. Otherwise, you would have asked me later what happened. But friends, not so with Jesus. He sees his disciples in their desperate straits, and he purposes to move into action on their behalf. And here I would just remind you, if you are a disciple of Jesus, he has his eye on you. He has his omniscient eye on you. His all-knowing, all-seeing eye. He sees you in the situation you are in. He sees you in the circumstance that is currently vexing and tormenting your soul, whatever it is. He sees you. But he not only sees you, he cares. He loves you. He died for you. And he looks at you not with uh, uh, an indifferent eye or a helpless one, He looks at you with an eye who has power to do something about it, and he will. And so the next thing we see is that Christ presents himself to his disciples. He sees them out there in the middle of the sea, straining at the oars, threatened by an angry sea, perhaps being threatened to be capsized and go to their death. Christ perceives them in their danger And now Christ presents himself to them, 48b and following. At about the fourth watch, between 3 and 6 a.m., some believe it's closer to 6, fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. Remember, Mark's gospel is to show that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is God come in the flesh to bring in the kingdom of God. And here we have yet another manifestation of messianic glory. First, note that Jesus allows his disciples to get into desperate straits. And it tends to be the pattern that whenever they're without Jesus, or when they think they're without Jesus, they get in trouble. In the boat, Jesus is asleep, and they're terrified because a storm has come up, and they're terrified. Here again, they're without Jesus, and they're in trouble, they're in a mess, and they're terrified. Friends, this is on purpose. This is by design. This trouble is to teach them more about himself, because as we have seen and as we will see, they still don't get it. They still don't have a correct perception of Jesus. And they need to have their understanding of his glorious person deepened and refined. And so it's not without purpose that Jesus allows them to be in this desperate situation. But notice then Jesus presents himself to his disciples. Verse 48b says, he came to them walking on the sea. So here you have this tumultuous churning sea. But the picture we get of Jesus is that he's walking calmly and evenly 
He's not being tossed around by the wind or the waves. It's as though he's walking on, on level payment. He's just walking. And it says he intended to pass by them. If you've read that with any thought, you've probably wondered, what in the world did that, does that mean? Why was he intending to pass them by? Was Jesus' intention not to help them? Just to pass by and mock them? Hey, you guys are struggling. You're about to go down in the ocean. I'm doing just fine walking along the water here. I have no problem here. Too bad about you guys. I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm walking on this water. No, not at all. It was not Jesus' intention to mock them in their desperation. He was there to help them. But it was crucial that they understand who it is who is helping them. Who is he? And to understand this revelation of Jesus to his disciples, even this phrase, he intended to pass them by, we need to take a look at an Old Testament passage. You can either turn with me or, or listen. <clears throat> As I turn back to Exodus, chapter 33, <clears throat> Moses has gone up to the mountain of Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. As you know, when he was gone, Aaron, his brother, leads the people in the idolatrous worship of a golden calf. It's got to be one of the most lame excuses ever given in human history. When Moses interrogates his brother, well, what happened? He said, I don't know. We threw this gold into the fire and out came a calf. Really, Aaron? Let's go through this again. One of the most lamest excuses in human history. And Moses is filled with holy anger. And he smashes the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Can you imagine that? The only thing that God ever wrote with his own finger. And Moses has the audacity to smash those tablets. But God is not angry with Moses. Because God is angry with the idolatry. And he's sympathetic with Moses. And God says at this point, look, these people are stubborn people. I'm going to send an angel to go with you. And Moses says, no, Lord, if you don't go with us, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't lead us up. I don't want to go unless you are going to personally lead us. And the Lord heeds the intercession of Moses and he says, my presence shall go with you. Then Moses wanted some evidence that God's presence would continue with them. I pick up at Exodus 33 and verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And you will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory, notice the language, is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then Moses is told to make, uh, take two more tablets, go up on the mountain, and I pick up in chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. 
Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, etc. Now, friends, take note that the Greek word in Mark 6, translated pass by, par erkomai, is the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that is used here in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. What is the point that Mark is seeking to make? That Jesus is seeking to make in intending to pass by his disciples as Yahweh, the Lord God in the Old Testament, was revealing his glory to Moses by passing by Moses, but Moses was not able to see him. In order to assure Moses that I am with you, my presence is with you, Jesus is passing by his disciples to say, I am present with you, and I want you to know who is present with you as he's identifying with Yahweh in the Old Testament that the one who is present with you, the one who is here to help you, is no less than the Lord God Almighty. That's who Jesus is. One commentator says, in Exodus 34, we are seeing the shadow that will one day yield to the shadow caster, Jesus Christ, in the Gospels. We are being given there in in Exodus 33 and 34 a 2D, a two-dimensional picture of what will explode into our own space and time continuum in 3D centuries later at the height of all human history. Moses could not see the face of God. The glory of God passed by, but it was unseeable. But now in Jesus Christ, we have God in three dimensions. Jesus present in bodily form. God present in bodily form among his people. And they may look upon him. Of course, the disciples don't recognize Jesus. They think he is a ghost. They're filled with superstition. So Jesus allays their fears back in Mark 6 with the words, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not fear. Friends, there's more to those words than meets the eye. When Jesus says, it is I, it is the, what might be familiar to you, expression, ego eimi in the Greek. Back in Exodus 3, when Moses was being sent to Pharaoh, and Moses was very fearful, Moses said, well, who shall I say sent me? And Almighty God reveals his official name at that point as Yahweh. The Greek translation of the Hebrew is ego eimi. And Jesus in the Gospel of John often refers to ego eimi. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the vine. I am the bread of life. And most notably... In John 8, 58, when Jesus makes this statement, before Abraham was, ego eimi, I am. Grammatically, he would say, well, before Abraham was, I was. That would be a claim to pre-existent deity. But when Jesus said, before Abraham was, ego eimi, he was claiming equality with Yahweh, with the eternal God. We know that because the Jews picked up stones with which to stone him 
no doubt for blasphemy. Jesus is coming to his disciples. He is coming to help them. He is with them, but he wants them to know that the one who is with them, the one who has his eye upon them, the one who has come to help you, is the I Am, Yahweh, Almighty God in human flesh, the Sovereign Lord and Creator and Sustainer of all things. That's why he is passing them by, or intending to, to identify with Yahweh in the Old Testament. Here is Jesus walking on water, Now we know that in its liquid form, H2O cannot sustain the weight of a man. But he is no mere man. He is the God-man. And all of the forces of nature are under his power and control. He can manufacture bread out of nothing. Ex nihilo, the prerogative of God to create out of nothing. And he can walk where there is no firm substance to hold him up. And as a final revelation of his identity, even his deity to his disciples, we read in verse 51 that he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped. No coincidence that at the moment he stepped foot in the boat, the wind stopped. In an earlier chapter, Jesus said to the wind and waves, hush, be still, be muzzled, and it ceased. Here he doesn't even say a word. He simply wills that it stop. And because he is God, the creator, sustainer, it stopped. It is worth noting that when Yahweh revealed himself to Moses there on Sinai, in passing in front of him, and he gives the self-revelation of himself. This is what he says about himself. The Lord, the Lord God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And that is the one who is coming to the rescue of his disciples here. In Jesus dwells all the fullness of deity bodily. And Jesus is full of compassion and he's gracious and slow to anger and full of loving kindness and truth. And not only is his compassion seen in rescuing his disciples, but I want to make one more final point about Jesus. And that is that Christ puts up with the weak faith of his disciples. 51 and 52 of our text. He got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart is hardened. We have this wonderful miracle, this wonderful deliverance from danger and possible death. And how do the disciples respond? Well, Matthew's version says that they responded by saying, you are certainly God's son. But Mark's words are more severe. It says they're astonished, but their hearts are hardened. Was there faith there? Yes, there was faith. But apparently it was pitifully weak faith. And the commentators note that their astonishment at this was not a commendation of their faith, but rather points to their weak faith. You wives, suppose it's your anniversary and your husband does something nice for you 
on your anniversary. And you are astonished, dumbfounded, that your husband has done something nice for you on the occasion of your anniversary. Is that a commendation of your husband's love? It may be more of a condemnation because it's like, wow, I never expected that. He did something kind for me because you weren't accustomed to him doing kind things. So your astonishment at his kindness may not be a commendation. It might not speak well of his love. It might speak poorly. And the commentators seem to note that they're too astonished here. By now, they shouldn't be astonished at Jesus because of all that they have seen and all that he has done. There's a problem here. Their hearts were hardened. The Greek word is porosis, from which we get osteoporosis. Now, to be sure, it was not the same hardness of heart that we see in the enemies of Jesus. They hated him. And they could see all manner of miracle and proof, and they still would not believe. That is a fatal hardness of heart. Their hearts were hardened. Same word. Can't get away from it. But it was not the hardness of a resolute unbelief. But it was still a dull-mindedness, a sluggishness. It says due to a lack of reflection on the past miracles. By now they should know what to expect of him. But their faith is still small. Biblical theologian Thomas Schreiner says this, The disciples loved Jesus and believed in him, at least to some extent. And yet they did not fully realize who Jesus was. And so their vision was obscured from seeing him with full clarity. The obtuseness or dullness of the disciples amazed Jesus. Later on, a couple chapters later, he's going to say to them, Do you not yet understand? But in spite of their weak faith, in spite of their exasperating dullness and slowness to believe, Jesus still comes to them. He still continues to reveal himself to them. He still rescues them, still calms the wind, still bears with them in their weak faith, even though they cause him great heavings of soul, great sighs. We see his great patience and forbearance and the fact that he puts up with their weak faith is yet another marker of Jesus' great love for his disciples. Well, a few quick applications, brothers and sisters. What should we take from this scenario? Surely it's a call to recognize that Jesus Christ is God in human form. If the disciples had no excuse for having a low view of Jesus and not having enough faith in the almighty power of Jesus, certainly we have less excuse than they. We have a full Bible. We have an Old Testament, which put, and the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ and his salvation. That's the theme of the Bible. He's the interpretive center of the whole Bible. We have an Old Testament that points forward to Jesus in so many ways. By explicit prophecies, by types and shadows, by various pictures of Jesus, all fulfilled by him. We have the full account of all of his miracles, all of his teaching in the New Testament. 
And we have the evidence of the transforming power of Jesus Christ through the gospel. The very ones who we will receive into membership and the one who we will baptize have given their testimonies to us. And we have sat in awe listening to the grace of God that has transformed these people's lives. And if you're a Christian, you have such a story. You can't explain the change in your life apart from the fact that Jesus Christ is is the living God and he's at the right hand of God. So... Certainly, we ought to recognize from this passage that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is the great I Am. He is the creator. He's the sustainer of the universe. He is God. And surely, this passage is a call to recognize Jesus as compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and full of loving kindness and truth. As he saw them in their need, he sees you in your need. In the various straits we get into in life, He cares for you, he comes to you, he rescues you. Sometimes it's in the 11th hour, but he comes through. My wife's organization, SWAN, as you know, came out with a a wonderful musical presentation that was released yesterday as a fundraiser, an hour and a half of superb music from some of Philadelphia's finest musicians. The last few weeks have been a great struggle because there were a lot of glitches But as we saw the final product, we had to rejoice and say, thank you, Lord. You brought it all together in the end. And my wife wants it to be an excellent product that reflects our excellent Lord. And it was. God came through in the end. Although sometimes it's the 11th hour. He will come to you. He will rescue you in his time. And then finally, surely there is here a call to trust Jesus more. That's the whole point of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. He's putting his disciples through these things so that they will have a clearer, fuller picture of who he is. They're not getting it fully. They'll get it eventually. But he wants our faith to grow. And that should be our goal. Not to be men and women, boys and girls of little faith who cause Jesus to sigh in exasperation. Our faith ought to be growing. How does it grow? The more we see his faithfulness in our lives, the more our faith should grow. Remember Tuesday at the counseling class, we were looking at David. When David faced Goliath, that was not the first enemy he faced. And he recalled, as a shepherd, I faced a lion. I faced a bear. And God gave me grace to defeat them. The same God will help me with Goliath. We need to look back on God's former faithfulness And allow it to fuel our future faith. He's been faithful in the past. He will be faithful in the present. Faithful in the future. And we ought to be Christians. The more we see of our Lord and His hand in our life, the more our faith ought to grow. Let us not be men and women of little faith, but men of growing, men and women of growing in great faith. And if you are here as one who has never put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation... Will you please see him for who he is? He is God come down as a man while not ceasing to be God. And friends, he didn't come to merely rescue us from drowning in the sea, as horrific as that would be. He came to rescue us from a far greater danger. We are under the wrath of a holy God. And we deserve punishment eternally in hell. 
And the highest expression and display of the compassion and grace of Jesus Christ is in being willing to go to a cross where he suffered an agonizing, anguishing death. Why? To take away our sins. So that if you simply repent of your self-centered worship of yourself, life of independence from God, put your faith in Jesus alone. He will take all of your sin, put it on Jesus, give you the perfect righteousness of Christ. He will forgive you of all of your sin. You will become his child and you will be destined for eternal life with God forever. If you're not a believer in Jesus, see him for who he is. Put your trust in him. But he's the only savior. There's only one God and only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the revelation of your son in this passage. Would you be pleased to further reveal him to our hearts as believers? And for any who may be unbelievers, would you reveal to them that he is the savior that they need and grant them the faith to believe? We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.